we've got this tagline search the way you think right you're able to just communicate very fluently have it understand and you know retrieve really relevant results that's jesse clark the co-founder and cto of marco and this is wild hearts Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Wild Hearts, the podcast dedicated to sharing the stories and lessons from the founders and operators changing the world. In this episode, the co-founder of Marco, Jesse Clark, will share how growing up on a farm surrounded by creatives shaped him, the lessons from playing A-list roles at both Stitch Fix and Amazon, how Marco is striving towards a product that searches the way that you think, what it really means to be developer first, who the losers will be in this AI revolution, and believe me, a whole lot more. And just for some context, Marco is building a revolutionary framework that will shape how we search. It provides search functionality to developers, which lets their application search anything like texts, images, video, audio with human-like understanding. And they let developers embed search into those applications with just three lines of code. With that context, let's dive in. Well, man, I'm pumped to get stuck in. How did you feel about the the structure? Did you have any questions? No, I mean, the structure looked good. I really appreciate you putting it together, actually. I think it all looks good. I'm happy to talk about kind of all of that. Let's kick it off then. The first heading was Farm Boy to Amazon. Does Farm Boy capture your upbringing well, or, or is that overly simplistic? <laughs> no, I mean, it's like, it's not a bad way to describe it. I think, you know, I mean... Probably to the purest, you know, farmers, I probably wasn't a farm boy, but, you know, compared to a city, you know, a city kid, I was definitely not a, you know, not a city kid either. You know, we had a hobby farm, you know, 25 acres, but it was in the middle of the bush, basically. So, you know, got a lot of that uh, kind of farm experience without necessarily having the responsibility of looking after many cows, for example. But we had, we did have our own cows, we had sheep, and it was kind of, you know, quite, certainly quite colourful, you know, upbringing, I think, and certainly reflecting on it now, you know, at the time you sort of, you know, I was stuck out in the bush and I didn't, wasn't in the city. It was, you know, hard to get to see my friends. And I was like, oh, you know, whoa me. And then I look back on it. It was like such an incredible place to grow up, you know, this really beautiful and just sort of, you know, quite free when I was, you know, young, I could just go off and do whatever I wanted, go fishing, go into the bush. You know, it was really quite liberating. But at the time you don't kind of recognize that. It's only in hindsight that you're like, wow, that was pretty good. So I, I was reading the investment logic and <laughs> it described your parents as hippie. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah. I mean, that's really interesting that that was like, whoever was like quite astute to make that kind of characterization. Cause certainly <laughs> the, uh, you know, where I lived, it was in the Otways, And I think it drew a lot of people at the time, you know, in the seventies and eighties, you know, who would probably, you know, yeah, certainly, you know, describe themselves as hippies. So it was very much that kind of vibe. A lot of artists, a lot of creators, like my entire family was, you know, sort of, you know, very strong on the sort of artist side. You know, everyone that we grew up with, you know, was artists, was creators. It was very much that, you know, certainly I think it was, you know, very much that kind of thing. So there's definitely a lot of characters and there was a lot of, you know, very interesting kind of things happening. Tell me more about, I guess, the sort of creativity you grew up with. Yeah, I think certainly my mum was a, you know, an artist. She did fine arts and then, you know, grew up doing you know, she had her own pottery business as well as sort of, you know, other things. And so my dad was in carpentry, and, you know, French polishing. And so there was very much this kind of, you know, creation aspect, right? Like, you know, very much this, you know, creativity idea and then putting it into, you know, conception and making something out of it. Cousins, you know, aunties, uncles, musicians, producers, actors. So, ah. you know, I was sort of slightly different. I took the numbers path, but. <laughs> uh, when, when did you start getting, because that is quite an alternative path. When did you start seeing yourself as, I guess, straying from the pack? 
Yeah, I don't know. It wasn't really sort of, I think it was something that kind of happened organically. I think one thing that was against me was just not particularly dexterous with my hands. I'm colorblind, I'm tone deaf. And so it really kind of ruled out, (laughs) ruled out a lot of these kind of artistic and creative pursuits, at least, you know, at that time. And so, you know, it was sort of, I guess, not much else to do. Um, I think it was just kind of intrinsic. I just was, I loved cricket when I was growing up. I love the numbers. I was just obsessed with numbers basically. And so, you know, cricket was drew me in because it was just full of statistics. And so I just used to just pour over this kind of stuff. And so I think that was from an early age, you know, my dad loved cricket. And so we had this kind of common passion. It was very much a numbers game. And so that was really, I think where it started to kind of incubate. And what was the, what was important to them in the way that they were bringing you up? Like if you think about that upbringing experience, what what sort of stands out as the sort of key themes? Yeah, I think it was pretty simple. I think they were just, you know, wanted to give us a good environment to, you know, be happy and then be successful. It was relatively straightforward in that sense. And so, you know, and always very encouraging, right, and supportive of whatever we did without too much judgment. So it didn't matter what we were doing as long as we were happy and doing something that sort of made us happy. And so it was very, you know, it was a very kind of, you know, good, solid, I think, foundation to be, you know, to be brought up on. One of the other things I read in the investment memo was that you worked at a local abattoir um, and had a big impact on your life. Can you share what that experience was like? Yeah. So, you know, growing up where I grew up, the career prospects were, you know, pretty limited if you stayed there, at least in my opinion, you know. And so, you know, when I was, you know, I think 16 or 17, I wanted to earn some money. I was stuck out in the country. My friend, his dad, you know, had a job at the abattoir and there were sort of three choices you know, you could work at the abattoirs, you could work at a sawmill, or you could work at the ice cream factory. And so the ice cream factory was in high demand for obvious reasons, <laughs> because it was, you know, much, much better. I couldn't get into the ice cream factory. Um, my friend, his dad worked at the abattoir. And so I was like, sure, I'll do it as a part-time job. You know, I was like, this will be fine. I was like, said to my dad, you know, I'll get $14.50 an hour. And he's like, you know, that's great. But, you know, you could probably get $100 an hour if you did something, you know, if you sort of aim a bit higher. And that was also where I started to think, okay, maybe there's I need to think bigger on some of these things, but it was just a, you know, it was such a brutal kind of job. You know, I was young, I was quite, I'm quite, you know, quite big as well. And so when I started out there, I was on a very easy job, which was just packing, you know, meat. It was very simple, incredibly boring. And I mean, you just watch, you know, the, the clock going backwards. It was just, you know, you get up at five, you work from six till three. It was just like, you know, painful. But then I got moved on to the kill floor. And so this is where it got very interesting. And it was like, you know, actually, sort of having to, you know, be involved in the whole process of sort of deconstructing, you know, animals. And so that was really just like, it was just backbreaking work. You know, I'd go there and sort of have to, you know, be pulling off the skins off sheep and, you know, right. doing that for eight hours a day and you'd get home and your hands were like a wrap tool because all the tendons are so sore. You know, in the mornings I'd have to like warm them up, you know, and I was just like, there's got to be something else. Like I can't, you know, that was just such strong motivation to go, I was like, okay, I'm going to university. I don't care what I'm doing. I'm going to get a job that just isn't this. And I don't, you know, <laughs> lots of people liked it. That was fine, but it just wasn't for me. <laughs> you know, there was, it was very much like, okay, I'm going to go and yeah, try and, you know, up my $14.50 an hour and do something that doesn't have me just, you know, dismembering animals eight hours a day. Yeah, that is <laughs> it's a fairly rational response. <laughs> All right. So, then you went into a Bachelor of Space Science and Physics. What drew you to that degree specifically? Yeah, so when I was sort of in my teens, and you know, one thing that was nice about the being out in the country was just looking up, there's no light pollution. So you look up the stars, it's incredibly clean. And so you can see, you know, a lot, especially on a clear night. 
and then being sort of obsessed with numbers, started to get a lot into, you know, sort of interested in just physics in general, sort of read like Stephen Hawking was quite popular in the late 80s, right? Brief History of Time. I read that, you know, James Gleek Chaos as well, which was an incredibly sort of influential book on me about dynamical systems and just the emergence of this kind of interplay and this sort of how math sort of underlies it all. And so I was just sort of, you know, really sort of starting to think about you know, sort of quite, you know, almost having an existential crisis when I was about 15, I sort of was like, you know, and I also just started to think, you know, why do we, why does anything exist at all? Why do we exist at all? Kind of like, you know, sort of asking the big questions that I was like, okay, I think I need to sort of, you know, pursue this. My original plan though, was to sort of do something much more, you know, sort of linear. And I was going to do, you know, aerospace engineering. And I had, you know, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. This is going to have a career. It's going to be very, you know, sort of, I could see the path forward. And then I don't know quite what happened, but at the last minute I was like, you know what, screw that space science sounds way more interesting you know i'm just going to do it because you know again like parents are like just do what makes you happy you know what you think is interesting so i just sort of flipped last minute changed when did that didn't care about you know the university or anything i was just like the subject seems really interesting you know i have a lot of kind of questions about you know just you know the universe and wanted to kind of understand it more so it was quite you know relatively sort of simple in that sense and did it successfully tick that box or alleviate that hunger in some of those questions not really. So <laughs> what happened was um, we did a lot, you know, space science. It had a lot in the physics. It was good, but it was, there was a lot of uh, the space was a lot of like upper atmospheric physics. So I wanted to go more cosmology. And so it didn't quite satisfy that itch. The other thing was that, you know, the advice that I'd been given was, you know, do something that you, you, know, you love, that you find interesting. That was great advice. But I would now caveat it with do something that you find interesting, that's, you know, passionate about that you can also get employed with mm. um you know i think <laughs> so you know very quickly i also realized despite it was 50 <laughs> incredibly fulfilling well you know on that sort of path that you know there was you know in terms of like job prospects i was going to have to do a bit more work but you know it was great as well in the sense i didn't have to commit to a career at that time was you know i think you know look back now you know when you're that young as well it's very hard to understand what you want to do for a career so it gave me some time to think a bit more about what i wanted to do and so it was very nice in that sense. I could still learn, do something, but then didn't have to necessarily make you know these decisions about my career quite so early. Mm. What I found interesting looking at, I mean, even just your LinkedIn was that you spent quite a bit of time learning and at university college, and then you made the the jump to Stitch Fix, which is an epic startup. How did you make that transition, and what sort of drew you to the the world of startups? I guess were you at uni for like seven years. Yeah, I was at uni for eight years. So yeah, what happened was, yeah, I did my bachelor's degree and I was like, I'm going to get a job. I'm not going to do honors. You know, that's for suckers. And then I couldn't get a job. I did honors. And I was like, I'm not going to do a PhD. That's for suckers. And then I did a PhD. And I'm like, I'm not going to go into academia. That's for suckers. So I did that. Um, and then I kept, you know, doing all these things that I you know, said I wouldn't do. But, you know, I was working, it was going well, you know, I yeah, spent a long time learning. And I think that was it. I was sort of, I don't know, it was just like, you know, this thirst for knowledge and trying to understand, I guess, a lot of these kind of primitives in terms of how things work. And so give me a good base. But I think, it, you know, we started to realize it was in, you know, it's been at University College in London. I moved to the US, was working at Stanford doing my own research. It was like 2013, late 2013 when I got there. And so there was a real kind of, a lot of, you know, tech was really happening, Facebook. There was a lot of stuff really taking off. And so, you know, I was literally in Palo Alto at the time and I was like, sort of grinding away academia was fine i could i could have made a career out of it and everything like that but i was like you know what i think there's something that's a bit more interesting here and it's going to be a lot more fulfilling you know i can really you know have a career out of it and so then sort of started to think about how do i actually transition out of academia and become employable because it's a 
you know, very different skill set. And I've got to learn how to, you know, I've never taken, you know, formally never taken any kind of programming. I had to learn how to program in a new language, had to do it very quick. Not only did I have to learn it, I had to learn it at a level that would allow me to be employed in some of the best tech companies in the world. Um, and so just started really working at that while I was sort of there. And a lot of it was to sort of you know, also think about, in hindsight, you know, we're growing up, you know, the internet, when I started, you know, at high school, we had these sort of Apple IIe computers. It was very early computers. By the time we'd finished, we had, you know, Pentiums with the internet. I went to university and I just took the internet for granted, even though it was so nascent at the time. You know, 2007 comes out around, iPhone comes out, you know, I kind of ignore that. And then again, it's sort of 2013, that's when I was like, you know, hang on a minute. I looked back on these opportunities, which I'd probably missed. I should have just done anything in, in those areas and I would have probably been successful. And I was like, I think I just need to do anything in this area. I'll probably be successful. And so I just really took that sort of jump. You know, life is short, really just kind of you know, try to embrace that. In terms of what you learned at Stitch Fix, incredible company backed by awesome investors built by an insane team. I think they were largely famous as well for the data science team that they built there. And you were a principal there. Can you share what it was like being in that engine room? Yeah, I mean, it was really good. It was such a good place to sort of you know, leave academia and work in industry. And it was also full of a lot of people. There's a huge amount of people who'd left basically academia. That's in fact, one of the strengths of Stitch Fix hiring early days for the data scientists was to basically pull you know, really good people from academia, put them into industry, have them work on these really hard, you know, numerical computing problems. There's a bunch of ex-physicists there. So it was, you know, it was very sort of friendly space in that sense. I think there's a lot of lessons. I mean, I, you know, they inherited a lot of their culture as well, I think from, you know, at least in the early days from things like places like Netflix. And so there was a huge emphasis on ownership and you know, that's sort of not super surprising, but certainly being full stack, that was something that was really key. It's like, you know, if you've got an idea, you're responsible to get it done right to the end of the production, right? Like you're the owner. If you want something to happen, you've got to make it happen. And, you know, being full stack, being really good in lots of different areas. And this was something that I'd actually seen in academia, the successful professors, weren't just, you know, you get told to focus in during the PhD, but the, actually the successful people weren't. They were very good at multiple areas. It was the same thing that I'd seen in the industry, being full stack. But I think one of the other big lessons that I learned, which is really pertinent today, was that what they were doing is they were building a lot of machine learning. And it was very, you know, relatively sort of simple compared to what it is now, but it was very effective. And it was used not to say replace humans or anything like that, but it was to augment people and you know superpower you know chart supercharge their kind of productivity and so this was just a you know a really good way to think of you know how do you actually use this technology it's not a replacement it's to augment it's a tool and it empowers people to do better mm. then tell me about why you left and what drew you to amazon another obviously incredible company yeah i mean i think at the time so it was such a you know again we've seen a huge you know pace of innovation now at the time, it was also, you know, very fast. It was 2013, you know, was really kind of the start of the modern sort of deep learning revolution. And so I joined them, you know, at the start of 2016. So it was still very early on. I spent two years there, a bit over two years, but I just knew that I wanted to basically go and do, I wanted to work on deep learning. I wanted to work on GPU computing. I wanted to do just really low level, hard, you know, fundamental machine learning stuff. I knew that that's what I just wanted to become good at. Why? You know, not uh, it was just, it was just really, I don't know. It was just really interesting, right? Again, I was like, this seems really interesting. I should just do things that are interesting. It's also being able to create. I mean, again, it's like this, you know, very, very much about like having ideas and being able to get them out into implementations. And so, you know, again, and then you can do prototypes and then you can build companies off these, right? Like that's, you know, being able to kind of get those ideas out. And so I thought that was a good avenue. Yeah. It was really quite fortuitous, you know, the recruiter reached out, sort of went from there. And I was like, 
seemed like a good opportunity to you know work in a company that was going to be right at the front of a lot of this stuff. At the time, it was actually when we decided to move, you know, to Amazon as well. You know, the kids we had just my kids had just been born. You know, we we're living in on the other side of the world, and so it was quite a hectic time anyway. And so, thankfully, my you know wife is is just fantastic. Was just like you know, let's go for it, let's do it, let's move to you know Seattle because we had to move as well. And so then we had to deal with young kids getting visas, going out to seas. There's a whole lot of it was like that was the first time I think where I was like I think I've bitten off more than I can chew when we had to relocate. I was like, okay, I think I'm this is definitely at my limit. <laughs> and I read a, a seven-page memo from you. So evidently, the famous Amazon memos have stuck. What's the value in those memos for you? Yeah, I mean, and that's a great point. I think just writing is a superpower. I think that's what I've come to learn, particularly from my time at Amazon. You know, just that clarity of thought and just being able to really you know, articulate succinctly ideas and even for yourself. And so it just starts out, you know, it just starts out with a very simple, you know, what is blah? And then you just write it down and you're like, hang on a minute, and you realize you're using all fluffy words, you're not actually articulating and it allows you to really think, you know, how do I condense this into a single paragraph? And then there'll be natural questions. And you're like, what about blah? And you're like, okay, let's write another question and answer it. And it just flows out very naturally, but it helps you get real clarity. You know, you have a, a question with a single kind of question in it and you have an answer that answers one thing. And then if there's more, you kind of do that. It really, really helps this kind of clarity of thought. And yeah, because it was such a heavy writing culture at Amazon, it became such a powerful way to influence as well. And and certainly, you know, this hacker mindset as well, a good way was to sort of, you know, ideas are cheap, implementations matter. So if you can do, you know, POC, something like that, then write a compelling, you know, memo about it. It becomes really, really attractive. Yeah. I want to bring you back to some of the questions you were asking yourself as a 15-year-old. Why does Marco exist? Well, yeah, that's a good question well, as look well. Look under the stars. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I saw a, I saw a hippo. Stars. <laughs> it was so Marco, there's a. I'll give you two answers. So the first answer is Marco exists because search is just pretty terrible across you know many places, and so I was just getting really sped up with that. Particularly, you know, I moved back to Australia and was trying to furnish the house and just had so much trouble searching. And you know, this was at the end of 2020, and I was like, okay, like this is really annoying. And then basically what happened in 2021, OpenAI released a paper clip. And so this was just a very simple idea, but incredibly powerful, which sort of standardized, I think, a lot of the ways that you could train models across, you know, different data modalities like images and text. And then you could use these sort of representations for search. And so it was very simple, very elegant. And so this really started to get me to think. I was working as well at Amazon and doing you know stuff in search. And so it was like, hang on a minute, we can use this, we can transform search. There's a whole bunch of stuff wrong with it. And so it started to really incubate those ideas. And then, you know, sort of the more you know that you sort of went into it is, you know, you start to actually think, hang on a minute, you know, let's take a step back and think about how important is search. And so, you know, you sort of focus now, Marco, on these invariants, which is like, you know, the amount of data is increasing exponentially. It'll continue to increase like that. A lot of it's unstructured. It's messy. You know, we're going to need to be able to search this data. Machines will need to be able to search it. Humans will be able to search it. So this this kind of capability is not going to go away. And, you know, the information and the ability for humans to sort of, you know, store, search and communicate has been such so pivotal to their kind of development. And so, you know, this is really you know, a fundamental piece, you know, I think of, of humanity. And so I don't think it's going to go anywhere. What sucked about search in 2020? Yeah, I think it's it's one, it's really hard. And so there's this intent, right? And so people's ideas of what it should do 
are very different, but then, you know, the system itself doesn't necessarily know about anyone else's intent. And so you have these weird jarring experiences, but it's like someone has put a lot of time into it. I mean, this certainly you know, takes a lot of time and, you know, people have tried to make it good. You know, also if it's like UI that kind of, you know, directs people into particular patterns and whatnot, but it was just, ultimately it's just bad results, you know, irrelevant results. You know, and sometimes it's incredibly bad. You search for dress and you get a t-shirt. Okay, that's pretty bad. Mm, mm. And maybe share a few examples of how I would be interfacing as a customer with Marco's search product. What sort of examples come to mind? Yeah, so as a customer of Marco, there's sort of really two customers, right? There's a sort of customer who would you know, use Marco and then there's the customer's customers who would use the beneficiaries of Marco. And so certainly what we see you know, we're a multimodal search engine. And so we can search across different modalities, images and text. And so what customers can do, particularly sort of end user search, right? So where the search bar is part of the product, you live and die by it. And so certainly being able to do, you know, product search, you know, across e-commerce, for example, you know, that's really a big use case, but it's very flexible. So information retrieval as well across text. And so you can certainly search across all sorts of different documents. And we've seen a lot of a lot of the applications are really developed with the rise of generative AI and we can sort of talk about that because now you can combine these kind of external knowledge bases, you know, with these large language models and augment their abilities with this additional knowledge. And it's really composable as well, which is great. So you can swap things in and out. Um, so when I think of the word, just the word search, my brain straight away sees Google and I see 10 links, 10 blue links. And now what I'm hearing is now I'm imagining perhaps I'm searching on Stitch Fix or perhaps I'm searching Amazon and the unit of value or the, the value exchange is going from X to Y. Can you share maybe a bit more color on that jump? Yeah, that's right. So search to everyone is, yeah, I think a bit different. And Google has sort of set the bar in a lot of sense for search, but that's that's sort of a different application. That's web scale search. So what we're really focused on is more like the real time, you know, sort of catalog and user search, for example, where you would be searching your Amazon or Stitch Fix storefronts. And so you know, there's lots of different variations, but we're focused on real time search. And so that has a lot of challenges just from an engineering perspective, because people don't want to wait five seconds. People don't want a minute for results. It wants to be instant effectively, but that's very hard because now you've got to actually search across things. So real time search, you know, is a real focus. And that's how it sort of differs from some other ones. And then also being on a catalog, it's not web scale search. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a set of things that people want to be able to search over, particularly around products, for example. And then it's about relevant products. You know, there's a whole broad spectrum of search as well. Sometimes it's incredibly verbose and you're looking for a very specific thing. And sometimes you're just, you know, sort of browsing, for example. Mm, mm. And maybe share a bit about how it works. Yeah. So Marco is using yeah, AI to basically power a lot of the search. And so what it does is it, it transforms, you know, information, so text images um, into these kind of representations, which we call embeddings, which are just basically vectors. And these contain a lot of information. They sort of a compressed representation of whatever the input was. And what you can do is you can sort of all of your content, you can store it in these vectors, which is much smaller, sort of smaller and compact, and they can understand the kind of content and meaning. And that comes from the sort of modeling side. And we can sort of touch on that in a minute, but basically, so now you've got these representations of all of your content and then you want to make a query. And so you just say, you know, maybe you've got e-commerce and you got a bunch of you know clothing. And so now you type in shirt 
So what happens is that shirt comes in, you know, as a, as a text query that also gets converted to this same representation. And then it gets compared to all of these other representations. And then the ones that are sort of the closest, you know, there's good ways to sort of define this, then get returned as the kind of the most relevant results. So that's sort of what underpins Marco from a technology perspective. And what we do is, you know, encapsulate this in this end-to-end -end system. And so the transformations from information into these vectors and embeddings is handled by Marco. You can customize it. And then the lookup, which is sort of happening in the vector database side, where you've got to do this really fast comparison because we want to be real time, we also take care of that. And so it's this end-to-end -end system. You know, we talk about documents in, documents out. You can put text in, you know, you can search and you can get back text. You don't have to deal with any of these vectors or transformations. And maybe talk about to the extent that you can share some of the, the technical breakthroughs or what's really excited you on the technical side that has really allowed you to stand out, especially as it pertains to like the challenge of, uh, you mentioned it a few times, being real time. Yeah, I think it's um what we're seeing as well as, yeah, particularly machine learning is this movement away from say individual models, right? For them to be useful, they've got to be part of these systems and to ship a system becomes you know much more complex. And so I think from that sort of standpoint, getting everything to coordinate together has just sort of been an engineering challenge, right? We want to have this really easy experience for people to come in and just put in their documents and then search it with super accurate results. And so there's this engineering challenge from the kind of coordination of just getting everything to work. And so that's that's one of them. But certainly what really excites me, though, is really the direction of the way these systems can be used. I'm incredibly excited. We're doing a lot of work, particularly around, you know, on the modeling side to be able to really curate and personalize, you know, based on companies' data, for example. And so this, you know, opens up a huge amount of opportunities. And then also this kind of composability of these systems. And so, you know, we see with normal search systems, you want to be able to change the behavior you know, relatively easily. You don't want to have to retrain a model wait weeks. You want to be able to have this kind of ability to manipulate the search behavior. And so this kind of per query personalization, which can be based on all sorts of things is something that we've also, you know, been very excited about because it allows, it also gives people agency over, you know, how they actually get their search as well. And so there's a lot on this, you know, sort of technological front, which has been incredibly, you know, I think interesting. And we're sort of pushing a lot of it forward and sort of, you know, really enabling these kind of powerful experiences. And then there's a whole host of other applications. This is sort of existing applications. Then we're seeing a lot of new applications around, you know, generative AI. Now, Marco, which is a system, is now becoming part of another bigger system with, you know, large language models and whatnot. And that's, you know, also incredibly exciting. Hmm. Maybe keep going now. Yeah. So, I mean, I think everyone was sort of blown away. We had ChatGPT come out, you know, I think the end of November last year. And there's a few things that made this really, really quite important. And sort of what's seen the exponential growth of something like ChatGPT, it did really two things in my mind. One was it took, you know, what used to be like a hundred different machine learning models and put them into one single model. And so you've got this massive increase. And then you've also got this other increase which was the barrier to entry was now reduced to just being able to write text so this natural language interface you didn't need to write code to get the model to do anything you could literally just ask it hey can you pull out the names of these addresses and it will do it hey is the sentiment of these sentences positive or negative and so you've got this you know almost like this quadratic improvement you've got 100 models in one you've lowered the barrier to entry in terms of how you actually interact and so that's why you know it's been such a huge change but some of the drawbacks, right, is that I think everyone knows it can sort of be very keen to please, you know, a user. And so we'll start, you know, be very verbose and talk about stuff that doesn't exist. You know, these models have been trained at a point in time. And so their information and their knowledge is really also cut off. And so one thing that's become, you know, incredibly powerful is that you can basically get these models to query knowledge bases to, you know, augment their missing knowledge. And so now you can update the information of these models 
you know, in real time, you can use your company specific data, you can use your personal data, whatever you want, and you can augment it now. It's like an intelligence, you know, it's like a memory, you know, hey, now you're an expert in blah. Now you're an expert in blah. You know, the number of applications this kind of unlocks, you know, it's just amazing. And so Marco provides that memory basically for these kind of models. And so you can integrate Marco with ChatGPT and you can augment it now with whatever knowledge you want. Mm. And can you talk a bit about, there's two sides I want to go here. One is the security layer that exists around either Marco or these large language models, at least from customers, I'm hearing how it's like, oh crap, my data is getting used to now trying these models and now it's going into their database. And now when they release the next version, I'm going to see my oil on the internet. Can you share what that security, if it exists, looks like and how you're sort of navigating those customer conversations? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think we're going to see it evolve yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out because certainly, I mean, we've seen it, right? So, you know, something like, you know, ChatGPT, um, you know, it's hidden behind an API, it's running on servers somewhere else. And there's, you know, a lot of questions about what is happening with that data. Is it going to be used for training? And so now companies have to also be very explicit about, you know, and actually they're going to have to be really true to their word. Are they using it or not? And certainly this PII, I think a lot of places won't let you do that. And that's, I think, pretty reasonable measure. And so certainly what we've seen though, is that now with the open source community and a lot of large language models, people are able to deploy them themselves. And so now you can deploy your own model on your own infrastructure. The data does not have to go anywhere else and you know exactly what's going to happen with it. And so I think we've seen this massive, you know, quite a lot of a shift to this kind of privacy centric approach where people have control over the end to end and they can deploy the map models themselves on their own hardware and they Mm -hmm. can actually um, ensure that, you know, that this data is being, you know, used in the correct way. The big companies, the big providers will probably have to provide some very, very, very very secure avenues with very, very robust guarantees, you know, to compete, you know, that'll probably happen. It'll take a little bit more time for the trust probably, but we'll certainly see this idea about like self-hosted isolated systems that you can deploy, you know, running on the company data. And I think, you know, we'll see like, you know, big incumbents pushing hard into that. We've already seen like Snowflake, Databricks will do this. I think a lot, Amazon as well. You mentioned something that would just help for the second question, which is why can't I just download a model and do this myself? Where does Marco intersect there? Yeah, it's a good question. And certainly from the sort of, you know, Marco perspective, you kind of can download it and do it yourself, but it's going to be a lot of work. You're going to need a lot of, you know, software engineering expertise. You're going to need machine learning expertise to kind of configure it. So what Marco really does, what we've tried to do is distill a lot of our collective knowledge, right, in cloud computing and machine learning into Marco so that you don't have to do a lot of, you don't have to think at the start about a lot of these things. They're kind of done, you know, very sensible defaults for you. And so all of that kind of orchestration, the best practices and how to set it up, because, you know, it's also very sensitive. If you get one parameter wrong, you'll be like, results are garbage. What is everyone talking about? It's very, you've got to really kind of configure it. When you get it right, it's magical. When you get it wrong, you're just frustrated. And so Marco takes a lot of that frustration out And again, it's all about really, I think, you know, this idea to implementation, reducing that time. And so you don't have to worry about all these other things. We take care of that. And we've seen this, you know, these abstraction layers with computing, you know, it's just unlocks, you know, so much more. We don't have to worry about writing assembly anymore. We have, you know, so many layers in between. Again, it's these sort of layers in terms of abstraction to make things much easier. So you could do it. It's going to be a lot of work. You can use Marco and you'll get going hundred times quicker. Mm, That's a great answer. And what do you think, I guess... The difference is between other vector databases or, or search products like perhaps Pinecone. 
Yeah, it's a good question. And so I think there's a distinction. What's been really helpful as well, I think, since you know the last sort of year with AI is the education of just, you know, all around AI has really helped, you know, our cause. And so before people had a lot of hard time discriminating between, say, what Marco and, you know, a competitor vector database is. But now it's much easier to talk about. And so like I mentioned, we're end to end, you know, vector search engines. So we take care of the, you know, the inference, the transformations, the vector database documents in documents out these other ones these products are vector databases so they're vectors in vectors out there's no none of the inference there's none of the transformations that's left up to expert you know machine learning teams software engineering teams and so the barrier to entry is much much higher and also you know to actually make a search engine as we're seeing as we work with customers to put the you know build production systems it's much more than just you know comparing vectors to other vectors you need a lot more around that in terms of you know being able to curate the search results after you've trained a model you can't just rely you know these are very opaque you know often these machine learning models and so you need a lot more ability to sort of introspect what's happening you know how can we steer the results how can we correct errors and so you know marco really also adds a whole lot of those kind of knobs that you can do post say model training to also you know curate the results and so really marco is this you know end-to-end system it includes everything you need like the databases are just a component. Mm. It sounds like you've put a lot of thought into the user experience and making it super easy for someone to pick up and then implement. Is that a fair assessment? And maybe share a bit of color on what you've done to really make that an awesome user journey. Yeah, that's a yeah, great question. Very fair. Certainly the user experience is exactly, you know, it's really important, I think, uh, there's a lot of you know poor user experiences out there to use AI, and so you know let's not make another poor one. Let's make one that's much easier to use. And again, it's this idea you know again it's from you know idea to implementation. We want to lower that friction and making it sort of easier to use and get started. Also, just increases the number of people that can use it, lowers the barrier to entry, and it really just enables people to get started and not really have to think about it. Right? You can use this now as a component. You've got great search. You can put that into the thing that you want to build. And so now you can build on top of that. You know, again, it's all very much like the way I think about a lot of things is like you want to take in, you know, what the best of everything is and then build on top of that. And so, you know, we allow, you know, developers to get started very easily with some of the best search technology in the world. And now they can build on top of that and go further. And we think about it a lot. We dog through the the product, we build on top of it. You know, is this, you know, are we doing something weird or is this still, you know, intuitive? What does it mean to be developer focused nowadays? I feel like a lot of companies will, will sing that song and it's hard to actually distinguish between what that belief actually means. Can you share what it means for you guys? Yeah, this is a good question. And I was looking, yeah, you sort of warned me that you would ask me this. And there was also another question on your on your sheet, which was like, um, you know, what's one of the best questions that VCs asked you? And this is actually one of the best questions I think anyone's asked us because I was like, actually, this is a really good call out. And one of the things that we learned actually at Amazon was this, you know, idea with writing was like weasel words. And so when you say something like developer friendly, you don't qualify what that means. This is a weasel word. And actually you've like totally called it out. So yeah, absolute kudos to you. I had to think a lot about this and I think there's the, sort of the standard answers. Okay. We're focused, you know, we're, we're targeting developers. We make content for developers and, you know, that's all certainly true, but I was sort of trying to come up with something a little bit better. And I think one is that we do what we say we do, right? Like we are an end-to-end vector search engine. You know, you can search across images and text. You can do all of this and that's what we can do. So, you know, other vector databases will say, yeah, you can do semantic search, blah, 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 but you've still got to implement a couple of hundred lines of code. You've still got to deploy it yourself. You've got to do all that. And so it's actually not particularly true. And so it's a lot of marketing. And so that's certainly frustrating to see. So I think being developer focused here is like, we say we can do this and we can do it. Everything that, you know, we say we can do, I've like 
done myself and we've actually built these systems you know, doing <laughs> it's funny that the, the difference is whether you're getting gaslit or <laughs> yeah that's i mean that's certainly um i mean it's also like you know marketing i think is becoming much more prevalent you know particularly in ai as well and there's always this education piece and so being developer focused i think is really just being very true to what we do and certainly we go you know i think also being just going above and beyond i mean we're very active in the community i think you know if you go you know anyone wants a question answered just put it in our slack community i'll be there answering you know we really really try and it doesn't matter you know big customer small customer you know we're really trying to you know get everyone to be able to you know use the technology and build and create value uh, there's two points there you mentioned you were open source share the decision to go open source and maybe on that is that creating value piece it's clear like reducing costs, reducing maintenance, being scalable, enabling new use cases, driving down like idea to implementation and removing that friction. What else? What else is unique? Yeah. So I think, yeah, open source. Yeah. The decision was relatively organic. I mean, Tom, my co-founder and I were sort of ideating early on and I think, you know, it wasn't our intention, but then, you know, I think as it came out, we're like, hang on a minute, like, let's just make it open source. And it sort of made a lot of sense. But also being you know, huge beneficiaries of open source ourselves. In fact, everyone is. I mean, you can look on your phone, this list of there's hundreds of licenses about open source software. Nothing exists today without open source. And so there's certainly that kind of you know, somewhat altruistic motivation where, you know, actually giving something back being after being such a beneficiary. But it's also just, you know, a very good way to get feedback, iterate very fast. And it's also, you know, here's our thing. It's open to the public, laying it all out there. And so, you know, it's, it allows you to really iterate fast and get a lot of feedback. So that's sort of the open source aspect. And then I guess the second part of the question was, I guess, what makes it unique? Well, one thing is we want to solve problems. That's actually where the kind of value is, the value creation is like actually solving problems. And that's very important. It's very easy to get enamored with technology and something cool and shiny, but who cares? You know, why? Again, we learned this at Amazon, like who cares? Why? You know, <laughs> Why does it exist? But solving problems is, you know, actually a big, big part of it. And so being very focused on actually building something that solves these problems. And so in terms of, you know, where we're going as well, what we're seeing, you know, this end-to-end -end system is really good, but there's a lot more that we can sort of do. And so on behalf of, you know, users and customers, so not only is it solving a problem in this point of time, but it's able to evolve and learn, you know, as things change and it continues to, you know, sort of do that. So we're investing a lot in terms of the actual machine learning and this kind of continual learning side so that the, the system itself can adapt and learn on its own, which is also, I think, incredibly exciting. I know you'll be launching the product soon. How are you thinking about the business model for the launch? And I guess the secondary question is, what are you excited about for that launch? Yeah, certainly on the business side, you know, I think we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. I think there's a well sort of trodden path. You know, we've built this open source software. It's very useful. We believe, you know, people get value out of it, but they've still got to deploy it themselves, got to manage it themselves. And again, a lot of people, like I said, want to use this, you know, technology and build on top of it without having to think of it. And so that's where the managed service comes in. So we take care of all of the management of the infrastructure, the deployment, we make it performant. And so it's just this really, really, you know, magical experience for people to come up you know, they sign up and then they can just basically get started, you know, right away and then, you know, pay for that convenience. And so there's certainly people who will not pay for that. That's fine. But there's a huge amount who will. And, you know, I think this is something I never quite appreciated for a long time. I used to just bang my head against the wall doing a lot of machine learning. I'd spend days trying to install packages, deal with GPU drivers and whatnot. And 
realize that you know 99.999% of people aren't going to go through this pain to use certain things and so making it very easy as well and in, you know the managed service really is a part of that is just making it incredibly easy to use you know so there's a lot of value there and i think you know that's been shown you know certainly before so that's really sort of the business model is we'll take care of everything for you and make it run really well and then what i'm excited about is just really getting it out there and getting people and you know seeing what people build you know getting the feedback you know i think we've worked very hard we've got you know been working with a lot of early customers on this and so i think it's just going to be very exciting yeah get it out there get the feedback and see what people are going to build i'm excited for you guys and the ai progress at the moment is measured in days not months it's rapidly moving and i think like at least one of the questions that i'm hearing other investors completely talk about is how is it defensible? What's the mode? Which kind of bugs me, but like when I was at least reading the seven page memo you had, you did call out like, this is Marco's flywheel. So I'd love for you to share how you think about the flywheel for Marco today. Yeah, everything's changing, you know, rapidly. And I think like I sort of alluded to earlier, just focusing on the invariance, right? So lots of changing, you know, again, this is not, you know, Jeff Bezos, you know, was the one who sort of talked about this with Amazon, right? Like information is growing, you know, search is always going to be there. People want relevant results. And so there's always going to be a need for that. But that in itself is sort of, you know, not the moat. But we sort of talk about, yeah, like the flywheel and sort of there's three big aspects to that, which is like there's sort of the code, which is our open source. There's the community, which is our users, our customers, you know, all of those people who are engaging with Marco. And then there's the cloud you know, which is the sort of managed service. And so we have this really good relationship where it starts out, say, with the open source and that goes into the cloud and that goes into the community and then we get feedback that goes back into the open source. And so we have this relationship where each of these kind of components is able to kind of feed back. It's a push and a pull relationship. So, you know, community features get incorporated out of necessity or working with customers, we integrate new features, we push them back out to the community. You know, I think that's really important is to be really like close to the problems, you know, make sure that you are actually solving the problems, creating value that you're not off in some echo chamber and doing, you know, something that just isn't valuable. And so having that really tight integration, again, moving fast, getting feedback, I think is, is really important. I love the way that you're thinking about the early advantages that are probably small now in terms of what they will be in a few years time in particular. How are you sort of deciphering between like what is timeless with Marco and what isn't timeless? How do you think about uh, with all of the the backdrop of things moving so quickly, the parts of the product or parts of the broader ecosystem that are sticking as genuinely solving a problem versus fancy tech? The parts that are genuinely solving the problem, again, I think we've seen a lot of potential new use cases arise right in the last sort of year or so with generative AI. It's unclear what is going to stick there as well. And so there's got to be a little bit cautious about, you know, over-indexing on, on that. But we've certainly seen again, you know, coming back to this kind of what's going to be timeless is again, like people are going to want to search. And if anything, it's going to become more important. Machines are going to want to search. And so those kind of, you know, high level kind of way to work back from it, you know, we're very flexible as well. We're not just like, this is, you know, this is our technology and we're only going to ever use that. We're very much again, like what's the best in class for the things that we need to build to build this system, which is then going to be the best in class and offer the best kind of performance. And so we can absorb other innovations, put them into Marco and keep our eye on that, you know, fundamental problem of search, solve that, but absorb all of these innovations as well. Speaking of Tyler's, what can history teach us about how AI will continue to proliferate? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that I almost certainly will be wrong, but we'll <laughs> see. I mean, we'll see, you know, the, the next big sort of AI companies will probably come out of, you know, relatively innocuous areas, right? Maybe it's, you know, 
a company who's deep into recycling and they start developing, I don't know, a bunch of computer vision. And now that becomes a cool thing and they develop the tech. And now, of course, you know, you've got this company that's come out of that. Or maybe it's taxation, something mundane, you know, you know, they start building this software, this AI, and then outcomes, you know, very similar to like, say, Amazon or Facebook. They started with these sort of really adjacent things. And so I, you know, do really think that we'll see, particularly around like service industries and whatnot, they, you know, solve a problem with AI and then develop heavily in AI. And then they might become, you know, absolute leaders in sort of AI as well. You know, I think we'll see, you know, a lot of change and it will probably happen in, you know, in the areas that we don't necessarily expect. I think people can sort of, you know, see obvious ways now, but it may not play out like that. You know, I am a firm believer that, you know, I think there's a lot of like doomers and, and sort of gloomers about, you know, the prospects. But I think that, you know, what we've seen previously, you know, AI, it's a tool, it's a technology, it augments people and we can improve our productivity, our life with it. I think it's an overall benefit and you've got to really be optimistic, I think, in the face of uncertainty on that. And circling back to that early call out you mentioned, what have been some other good questions investors have asked you that have stood out? Super curious. Yeah, other good questions. I think the questions themselves, I don't remember like necessarily particularly ones, but certainly I remember that like more observations that I think it's very interesting to get people's takes. Like as you said, everything's happening very fast. And so it's also just unclear what's happening. But I think, you know, trying to see, yeah, where is it going to evolve? And so, yeah, certainly observations through investors about where they think it, you know, has been most useful. So even that example where I was talking about the services and whatnot, I think that was actually something that, you know, I heard first from an investor as well and started to really think about and was like, actually, you're right. Like, I think it's very, you know, people are sort of thinking of very obvious things right now, but I think it'll be a lot of the non-obvious things which will become dominant. And so that's very exciting. And where do you see Marco existing within the tech stack and what other parts are you finding compelling? Yeah. So, you know, Marco existing in the tech stack, you know, it's providing search, you know, as part of a, you know, a, a system, for example. And so it's very, you know, easy to sort of integrate, becomes a search provider basically. And so you've got an API, you can use that. And so it becomes part of your application and you can just build on top of that. And then sort of, you know, where is, you know, all going and what gets me excited again, I think, like, I think that, you know, we're sort of starting out with this kind of problem of, you know, just the search and the API, but like I mentioned, this idea where machine learning systems, I guess there's sort of three, you know, three things that are true in life. There used to be two things. Now there's three things. There was death, taxes, and, you know, retraining machine learning models. Um, <laughs> this idea of, you know, continual learning and, you know, being able to adapt to user behavior, this is very exciting. I think this is where we're going to be going, certainly in the, in the near term and being able to have these systems again, because we're seeing a vector database on its own isn't good enough, you know, vector database with a model not going to be good enough. You're going to have to have a system that is able to adapt on its own. And, you know, that I think is really exciting. With so much happening, what do you think the losers look like? Like what's standing out as some of the red flags? Or put another way, what is shiny today, but becomes table stakes tomorrow? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, we've already seen just the commoditization of a lot of these technologies around LLMs. And I think we've been very cautious about you know where we invest on that because a lot of it is very hard to defend and it just becomes commoditized and it's a race to the bottom and then you know the companies just become marketing companies basically and you know that's fine but that's not necessarily what we want to do um and i think the you know the losers you know why if they're playing in that space you know they're just not able to kind of reach the audience and market well enough but i think as well being very careful about are you yeah, investing in something that isn't actually a problem and that looks like it's a very cool piece of tech. It's kind of magical in some instances, but it's actually not solving a problem. And again, just being incredibly customer focused, you know, I think the winners will be solving problems and very, very focused on customers. So I don't think, again, this will be any different to what's sort of been the recipe for success in the past. I think LLMs are a key selling point in the year. 
I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know, on their own, again, it's like, you know, everyone will be like, yeah, okay, that's, you know, if you don't have one, what are you doing, you know, kind of thing. Or, you know, using it will be just, you know, another piece of the technology and it'll be everything around that. Again, I think everyone, you know, quickly is like, oh, this is amazing. And then you're sort of using it like, oh, it's not that good. It doesn't do this thing, doesn't do that thing. And so now, you know, the sort of standards go up and then, you know, it'll be the other stuff around, you know, the, the LLMs. And so the LLMs will be in the background, but it'll be everything else around it to make it really useful. That'll be kind of differentiators, I think. I think that's a really interesting point. Like the standard that we have come to expect, I mean, even in my own experience using LLMs, at first it's like, holy moly, this is genuinely magical to like, damn it, why is it? I'm already frustrated. Yep. <laughs> it's been like six months. That's right. Yeah. This, you know, our standards has just changed dramatically. You're like, yeah, it's incredible. You know, that'll keep happening and that's good. It you know, pushes everyone, right? Like you're like, you know, don't settle. And it's, and it's funny, like, especially people who, you know, aren't really into it, right? Or, or sort of, you know, not particularly, you know, they just sort of use it. They're like, oh, sort of dismiss it. And you're like, oh my God, but this is this amazing thing. It's taken, you know, humanity's like greatest minds to create. And everyone's just like, yeah, but it doesn't do X. And you're like, okay, that's really grounding, right? Because it's not solving a problem. Yeah. And maybe describe in 10 years or take us out to the ultimate user experience for Marco down the line. Yeah, it's a tough question, but I'll throw an answer out. Um, you know, I think we've got this sort of tagline that we've had at least sometimes is sort of, you know, search the way you think. And so I think it's like that really like fluent, Ooh. you know, just. I've got a title name now. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's literally just search the way you think, right? You're able to just communicate very fluently, have it understand and, you know, retrieve really relevant results and have these systems that adapt. And so that's probably much shorter time frame. You know, 10 years, I think will be, you know, it could be, you know, it, it's okay. incredibly exciting to think about though. You can imagine if you've got a system and you're sort of querying Marco and then now Marco knows it doesn't have good information for that or it doesn't have actually good stuff. And so now it goes out, retrieves, augments its own knowledge and, you know, fixes that gap in its knowledge. You know, we'll see these systems, I think intelligent systems, you know, these sort of autonomous systems being able to act like this, which will be incredibly exciting where it can self-correct and patch. And so, you know, you can have this sort of yeah, self-learning. Look at the counterfactuals and triangulate what's missing. Yeah. Powering every search experience on the web. That's it. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me on Wildfast, right? Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's uh, always a pleasure. Never a chore. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. If you left with more energy than when you started, we'd be super grateful. If you liked, subscribe, left a review, even shared it with a friend. In case you want to keep in touch, share feedback, or even a pitch deck, I'll leave my link card in the show notes you to get in touch thank you so much for listening once again and we'll see you in a couple weeks godspeed